Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to be speaking on Books, Books, Books with Dr Evie Wilde about her fourth book, The Bass Rock, which has recently won the 2021 Stella Prize. The judges' report for the Stella has described it as confronting, chaotic and charming. The Guardian described it as a complex, searingly controlled catalogue of male violence against women. And the New York Times described it as wondrous and disturbing. I'm just going to tell you a little bit more about Dr Evie Wilde. She's a British-Australian writer who lives in London. The Bass Rock is her fourth book and her third novel. Evie's books have been shortlisted for the Orange Prize for New Writers, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the International Dublin Literary Award, amongst many others. In 2013, Evie was named one of Granter's Best Young British Novelists and in 2014, she won the Miles Franklin Award for her second book, All the Birds Singing. Evie is part owner of a bookshop called Review in southeast London, and she lectures in creative writing at Kent University. Evie, a big warm welcome to Books, 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 and a particularly huge congratulations on recently winning the Stella Prize. That's a really fantastic achievement. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, I'm going to start, before I ask you what it's about, I'm going to ask you to read mm-hmm. uh, a short extract from The Bass Rock, and I believe you've chosen an extract from right uh, at the beginning of the book, the opening pages. Yes, I have, and that way, I'm, you know, it's quite lazy of me. I don't have to do any explaining. <laughs> Off you go. Okay. I was six, and just the two of us, my mother and I, took Bowie for a walk along the beach where she and Dad grew up the shore a mix of black rock and pale cold sand. It was always cold, even in summer we wore wool jumpers and our noses ran and became scorched with wiping on our sleeves. But this was November and the wind made the dog walk close to us, her ears flat, her eyes squinted. I could see the top layer of sand skittering away so that it looked like a giant bedsheet billowing. We were looking for cowrie shells among the debris of the tide line. I had two digging into my palm, white like the throat of a herring gull. My mother had a keener eye and held six. I felt the pull of victory slackening. Resting in a rock pool was a black suitcase bulging at the sides. The zip had split and when the teeth no longer held together, I saw two fingers tipped with red nails and one grey knuckle where a third finger should have been. The stump of the finger, like the miniature plaster ham I had from my doll's house. The colour had been sucked from the knuckle by seawater, leaving just a cool grey and the white of the bone. It was the bone, I suppose, that made it so much like the tiny ham. I moved my arm to swat something away from my face, and as I did, flies rose from the suitcase in a cloud, thick and heavy. Behind me, my mother. Another one, she called. I found another one. And then the smell, like a dead cat in the chimney in summer. A smell so tall and so broad that you can't see over or around it. My mother walked up behind me. What's? I kept looking at the fingers and trying to understand. My mother pulling me by the arm. Come away, come away, she said, and spitting over and over onto the sand. Don't look, come away. But the more I looked, the more I saw, and peeking through the gaps between the white fingers was an eye that seemed to look back at me, that seemed to know something about me and to ask a question and give an answer. In the memory, which is a child's memory and unreliable, the eye blinks. Evie, thank you. Could you tell us what The Best Rock is about? Sure. Um, 
It's about, it follows three women um, in different timelines. So there's Sarah, who um, is a woman accused of being a witch in the 1700s. And she's escaping with some people who are helping her. Um, and then there's the 1950s um, with Ruth, who has just moved into a big house on the coast of Scotland. And she's married a man with two children from his previous wife who's died. And she's gradually beginning to realise that he's not who she thought he was. And then there's Viv in the more or less present day. He's a um, quite crudely and, and thinly veiled version of me. <laughs> and she is um, clearing out her grandmother's house, um, who was Ruth, and discovering some of the um, uncomfortable secrets that are left behind. What these three women all have in common, Evie, is the threat and the reality of male violence and control in their lives. So I'd like to start by talking about that and how it became a unifying theme for the book. Mm-hmm. I understand that when you started writing The Bastrock in 2014, you had a newborn baby. And at that stage, you were writing in one hour spells as your baby slept. And at that stage, you were writing the stories of the three different women, but the stories weren't connected. You've said that there were two things that helped you to realise that the stories of these three women were in fact all connected. One was the work of Australian journalist Sherelle Moody and the other was the Me Too movement. I'd like to talk to you about each of those and the impact that each of them had on the book. So let's start. Could you tell us about Sherelle's Australian femicide and child death map? What is that and how did that influence you in in um, making mm. this a cohesive story of the three women. Mm. So Sherelle Moody is a um, an Australian journalist, and she started putting together this um, this online map of Australia, um, and it's covered in these little red hearts. Whenever you click on a heart, you find um, it will it will have the name um, of uh, either a, a woman or a child that has lost their life to violence. Um, And what she does is she researches them and she tries to put up as much information as she can about them. Um, So there'll be a name, there'll be what happened, then there'll be the perpetrator if they were prosecuted. Um, And it's a, you know, deeply sad and moving map. Um, And I think one of the things that was really overwhelming and, and it is still really overwhelming when you look at it is the amount of times you'll click on a heart and it will just say um, unknown female and there's no other information. Um, so no one was prosecuted. It's, you know, I, I it can't really, it can't really be logged anywhere. It, nobody gets any closure from it. Um, and, and it started me thinking about, um, you know, those unknown females being alone, like at, their most um, hectic moment of their life at their most perilous, terrifying moment. And not only that, but then there's no, um, there's no closure for them. Uh, There's no um, comeuppance. There's no, nothing is packed away. It's just this thing that happened and um, nothing more just this horrible moment. And so I was writing, one of the things that I was um, writing, as well as these three voices, were these um, little, very short moments in women's lives where they were in peril. Um, Some of them are the moments of their death. Some of them are um, after their death. Um, And I was just sort of, I became quite obsessed with the idea of just being in the room with a woman while that was happening and witnessing it for her. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about that, the bearing witness, that idea of mm. bearing witness and how important that is, and that's what Cheryl was obviously doing. And that's mm. what you're doing in this book as well, isn't it? You're bearing witness. There are a lot of women who are murdered or are um, dealt with violently in this book, and, and that is what you are doing as well, you're bearing witness. Mm. Yeah, certainly what I'm trying to do, I think, 
I was I was looking the other day at my deleted file, um, which I have for every novel. It's all of the bits that I, you know, I liked, but I had to take out. And I've got a lot of other moments of um, of women in these positions. And a lot of them are from my own life. Um, but they're moments that I never felt able to speak about because ultimately nothing happened. But... Mm you could feel you know all women have experienced that drop in their stomach of that dread that intuition that something is wrong you you talk a number of times about something that I think every woman can relate to which is walking down a dark road at night holding your keys between your fingers that's something we're Mm. all we're all trained and I, I saw in one of the interviews that you did recently you said you just wanted to think about the difference between the lives of people who do have to clutch those keys between those fingers, i.e. women, and the Mm. people who don't, Mm. i.e. men. Mm. And I think that's really fascinating, especially when you think about how, you know, in the vast majority of cases, it's, it's men hurting women, it's men hurting men. And yet somehow, um, you know, with with the case we had over here a couple of months ago where Mm. Sarah Everard was murdered by a policeman and immediately the response online was like, what was she doing walking alone? What was she doing? And, you know, it was nine (laughs) o'clock. It was nine o'clock after a pandemic and she was out on the street Mm. being a young woman, taking some air, like talking to her boyfriend on the phone. Mm actually doing all the right things not that you should have to do right Mm. things in order to not get raped and murdered but um but yeah the the blame and the responsibility for not getting raped and murdered always seems to lie with the woman you know it's all of these um all of these tricks that from young girls we're we're taught you know um aim for the balls or the throat or you know we all know how to how to push somebody's nose back into their brain mm-hmm. and it's sort of it's a it's a really uncomfortable sad thing that we have to teach our girls and and I just think as the mother of a son the my responsibility is to teach him not to harm other people amazingly hard when you, you kind of my my boy is six now and you see the world around him like trying to get in and it, it is spooky it's it's a hard thing to rail against Evie as I mentioned the other the other thing that you said really had an impact on you in the writing of this book is the me too movement now obviously when mm. you started writing it that hadn't in 2014 that hadn't yet unfolded but you've said that when it did unfold, when all of that happened, the Me Too movement, it helped you to work out that these women were part of the same story. How did it do that? How did the Me Too movement influence you and I suppose refine your thinking into um, the belief that the stories of these three women were Mm. interconnected and that there was a common theme? Mm. I think it was about um, going from witch hunting um, and and sort of looking at how, you know, we think of that as something that fizzled out in the 1700s. Um, but the same thing, you know, the same result is happening here with, dom- with domestic violence. Um, and and I think I was, it made me think about how, like at one point I was imagining it being like a sort of thriller about like, oh, um there are still witch hunters and, and, you know, there kind of are each of my, yeah, each of my characters rebels in some way. And as a result are um, either, you know, well, I won't give anything away, but you can imagine. Um, So I think that was, that was one of the threads that, that really made sense. I was like, this is the same thing that is happening in the 1950s. And it's the same thing that's happening now that um, a woman speaks up or steps out of line and there is a an army there to squash her back. Um, and the other thing with Me Too is women sharing their stories and listening to each other and unearthing themselves, um, like unearthing these traumas that perhaps you didn't even think had affected you. You know, the time you got um, somebody's 
penis rubbed up against you on the tube when you were a girl or um, the sleazy family member who mm. used to sit next to you at Christmas. Mm. You know, the kind of the things that you just pack away as a as a girl mm. as part of being a girl. This mm. is like I was born in this body and so therefore people take parts of it away. Um, and And it felt very much like there was this sort of witchery happening that that this power coming from women telling their stories to each other and listening and um not being quieted you know and standing by each other as as um, one voice was added to another it was as if, it was almost like a tidal wave wasn't it that- mm, it was and it was a really thrilling moment to realize that all of these things that we're kind of taught to pack away inside us that they come bursting out and they make us larger and they make us you know they make us louder and more angry we're going to come to talk a little bit later about women's rage and the the role that it plays in this book (laughs) almost every woman in this book has been the victim of male violence it's it's ubiquitous it pervades the whole of the narrative right from the beginning as we've heard from the passage that you read we've got on the opening page a young viv who's the contemporary woman Uh, who's out with her mother walking on a beach and they find a woman's body in a suitcase. And later on we find out that um, Viv later learned that her boyfriend killed her because she was trying to leave him. When you accepted the Stella Prize, you talked a bit about the book and your thinking as you wrote it. You said something interesting I wanted to ask you about. You said that when you started, your central idea was that all of the violence ever committed against women was committed by the same malign presence and you thought it would have to be speculative, full of magic and monsters. But you then said this, the problem is it's not a monster, it's part of the fabric of everything. The poisonous narratives that lead women to believe their safety is worth less than male dignity begins with the messages we send about what sort of work matters, that male work does matter and female work does not. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Well, I think in the last year in particular, when, you know, all of our um, energy has been going into keeping the sort of family alive um, and homeschooling and all of the domestic labour that has fallen to women, um, you know, we've felt this real reversal um, and, you know, it's, it's just become quite stark and obvious that um, the things that are considered unimportant, like keeping a clean house, like cooking food, like um, bringing up children, these are all vital things. You know, we couldn't live without them or life would be very unhappy and, you know, we'd get sick, we'd all be stupid. Um, And yet somehow they're seen as lesser work because they are women's work. And I don't know, there's this uncomfortable thing where I certainly had a lot of other things that I would much rather have been doing last year (laughs) Um, and important things and just as important as the work that my um, husband was doing or that my male friends were doing. Um, And yet somehow without, you know, without anyone asking, it fell to me to pick up everyone's crap. <laughs> and to fit your work around that. Yeah. It's kind if, of a throwback, isn't it? it it's a, yeah. We thought we'd got past that. We we did, yeah. And I think there have been a lot of moments that we we thought we've got past a lot and actually it's still there. It's just, it's almost like, um, you know, with my mother's generation you know, who was, you know, very feminist and, you know, she proudly calls herself a bra burner and 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 it's almost like it was said out loud and so everyone went well that must mean it's happened and and it hasn't it's just that you know women are given this option of like you can have it all which means as as well as keeping your house bringing up a child you know being pregnant and giving birth you can also work <laughs> and it's like well yeah thanks but also <laughs> if couldn't we all do a bit of everything you know and I do I really do think that the looking at the large violences the Sarah Everard you know worst case scenario 
stranger takes you off the streets and murders you because you're a woman. I feel like that is sown in the way that we value um, women and and the work that they do and the small violences, you know, the small moments of just, it sounds so, it sounds so puny, but leaving a plate by the sofa instead of Mm. picking it up and putting it in the dishwasher Mm. means that you expect that the woman will come and pick it up and do it for you because that is her job. And that that's the, the silent um, underlying assumption. Mm. Yeah of of those um actions and they're so small and everyone does it occasionally and there's something in a partnership of like well we all muck up and we all make a mess and whatever but there is that relentless thing I think there was one woman who um as a sort of joke on TikTok or or Instagram or something stopped clearing up just to see what her family did and they didn't notice for ages they were just like where's all the clean plates and but it was just, it was really depressing. It was very funny, but it was also like, they really don't, like, it's not something they're doing on purpose. It's in the grain of them. It's it's like, this is what women are for. They are to make everything nice. And I think it's a really, really difficult um, thing to get around because we also want to have a nice life. You know, I don't want to live in filth. And there becomes a point where you go, well, I'll just do it then. And then I don't have to worry about it. And and you keep doing that. And it keeps reaffirming this idea that that's your job and it becomes your job. And your argument is that until we value the work of men and women equally and until those root causes really change, then we won't be successful in eradicating domestic abuse. Yeah, and I think it's what it really is is seeing women as human beings rather than you know the the easiest way to do wrong to someone is not think of them as like you Mm. um and I and I think there is a chasm um when it comes to when it comes to domestic labor um and that enables of you know looking at women as objects sexually and then it enables thinking about them aggressively as you know that if you look at the sort of speak that um, the incels have about um, how women are always desperate to have, all women are desperate to have sex all of the time. Um, And it's just that they only choose the most good looking men to do it with. Like, it's like this weird currency and, and it's so, I mean, it makes us sound like aliens, like something that's not part of the human race. And, And I think that all starts with this, um, division of labour right right down at the roots. I want to come back to the um, the language that you used when you said initially you thought it would have to be speculative and full of magic and monsters. It's very clear in this book that there's a ghostly presence throughout. Mm-hmm. All of the women see a ghost. Maybe it's the same one, maybe it's not in the house, and there's a lot of knocking on doors and creaking floors and knocking from the inside of wardrobes. So what I'm wondering is what is the significance of ghosts in this book, in the Bass Rock? What do they signify here? Is it the threat? Well, I think, um, you know, going back to Sherelle Moody's map, um, this idea, and, and Maggie says it like directly at one point, this idea of like what if we could see all at once a hologram of all of the women, you know, this idea that all of the women who have who've died through the violence of men, this idea that we're walking through spaces all the time where women have been murdered um, and that shiver you get down your spine, the, um, I don't know, it's almost like a, I wanted them to be like a, a physical um, manifestation of, a woman's intuition, you know, you, you get that feeling, you know, something's wrong. You couldn't put it into words because, but your brain has picked up on some cues that you're not aware of and you're given that signal. And as from the time we're little girls, we are taught to ignore that. Mm. And, and there's something, I don't know, there's something so brutal about that of like, you know, cutting off your own natural intuition 
and your mm. own witchiness. You've talked um, about that before, that, that women do have a sixth sense that, no offence to any uncles of mine, but all of us can remember yeah. the creepy uncle or tradesman yeah, yeah. or whatever it was who who brushed up against us or put a hand on us yeah. in, and uh, you described the prickling of the hairs on the back of your neck. Mm. All women have experienced, I venture to yeah. say, have experienced that at some mm. time or other and, and you, you've talked about how we are taught to put that out of our minds and not to trust our own instincts. Mm. Exactly. And, yeah, I feel like I'm often doing a disclaimer about my uncles as well. They're all fine. <laughs> but, Mine too. <laughs> but I think um, in the book there's um, a few moments of tickling, which is like probably the most sort of obvious way that that unfolds in that if somebody tickles you there's really there's no way of complaining about it despite the fact you're saying I don't want to be tickled that is always the invitation to tickle Mm. and then tickling happens and the natural response is laughter and the, the whole can't you take a joke thing um or yeah, anything that makes you feel like you don't have a way of responding. Um, there's no there's no way that I can articulate. Um, you know, I, I when I was about uh, 14, mm. two of my male friends who were really sweet, you know, they meant nothing by it. They were just still children and they pinned me down and tickled me. And I, I remember this feeling of like, you're completely helpless. Mm. And, you know, I'm a hundred percent sure that they meant nothing by it, but they were, um, they had the power. And when one person has the power over another person, it's just, you know, it's Mm. a recipe for nightmares for me anyway. (laughs) I'm glad you got to that tickling story because I wanted you to ask, we're going to be very careful that there are no spoilers in this discussion, but there's just one, Mm. one uh, incident I'd like you to discuss. And that is the annual picnic. That Ruth. So Ruth's the character in the 1950s who's moved into this house. She's living in this house in, in northeast Scotland with her husband and his two sons from his previous marriage. And she's told that part of the duties of being the mistress of that grand house is to take part in an annual picnic. Now that okay. involves a game of hide and seek. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that and start by telling us about the clothes that the women wear. Mm. So um, so it's an annual winter picnic, which is about the most British thing that could ever happen, I think. It's a horrible idea. Um, and all of the women dress up in kind of in the same outfit. And it's a kind of, uh, witch, you know, Halloween style witch's outfit uh, with a mask. So they all look more or less the same. Um, and Ruth is sort of, she wasn't aware of that fact she wasn't aware of the the hide and seek thing she thought it was just like a drinks thing and then the women come around and they've bought her an outfit and they kind of make her change into it and it's all embarrassing and you know you can imagine the the social pressure of the uh, awkwardness of it and she has to take Um, off her stockings which is a detail that becomes significant yeah yeah so it's 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 not the right thing to be wearing on a beach in winter for a start (laughs) and then they all go down to the beach and there's some drink and then um once all the kids are taken off um for a boat ride um there's a game of hide and seek with the adults and the um the women hide and then the men seek them and when they find them they have to tickle them until the woman gives up her name so Ruth is hiding in a log uh, for quite a long time and, and she can hear these women being found and the kind of outrageous cackly um, giggling and, and shouting. And then she gets found by two men and they, um, in inverted commas, tickle her. Um, and, you know, she's got no stockings on, skirt rides up, they, like... Hands on I her think it's, yeah, Hands on it's, her breasts. Yeah, which is what tickling is. I mean, it's it's an opportunity to grab at a woman's body, um, and the you know the convenient tickly places are sort of under the breasts and you know armpits, but really, um, and 
So she's just aggressively groped. Um, and then when it's over, she calls her name out and, and, you know, it goes on a little bit longer. And when it's over, she's got no way of complaining about it because how will they talk to her husband about what happened? You know, how will she talk to her husband about it? She was playing a game as an adult and some, some bigger boys tickled her. There's, there's sort of nothing that you can put into words, but it's something that all women know. It's also a step on the continuum, isn't it? I mean, there's another, there, again, without wanting to give too much away, let's just say that there's a, a later scene when a male character tickles a woman against her wishes when she's told him that she hates being tickled. She gets very angry about that and he responds by being angry that she's angry. Mm. So it's almost as if touching touching a woman in that way without her consent and, in fact, over her clearly expressed opposition, it's, 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 on, it's on the way to sexual assault, isn't it? Mm, definitely. It, it should be, I think, I mean, there's... There is tickling pornography mm. and it's in the BDSM kind of category. So it kind of, it feels like between consenting adults, fine, <laughs> but have a safe word um, yeah. because it is sexual. And I, I sort of, I don't know, mm. the body is like important and it's important to, to teach your kids that you don't just, you don't just, tickle someone just because you call it a game and the fundamentally that no means no I mean this character here mm. says well you said you didn't like being tickled that's just an invitation to be tickled mm. I mean that's just the that's just the rebuttal isn't it of the no means no yeah. that's like no means no no means yes yeah yeah exactly. I think that leads us in nicely to one of my favorite parts of this which is the the way that you showcase gaslighting or to put it in I suppose more old-fashioned terms how a woman who complains of sexual assault or who accuses a man of something can be undermined by being accused of hysteria or of, of making things up. So, again, wary of spoilers, one of the characters accuses her male partner of adultery. Mm-hmm. How does he respond to that allegation? And then what impact does that response have on her and her psyche? He responds firstly with um, anger. I think that that tends to be the response when, you know, when there's a possibility of um, kind of taking a long look at yourself. I think that is often the response. And then he responds by telling her she's, imagined it and she's crazy um and and there's this interesting thing that happens when you know he knows that she knows that he knows etc etc and but the the more that he keeps up this facade because he can because he's the man of the house and because it's almost actually expected that a man of his sort of standing and, um, you know, it's not an unusual thing to have a mistress. Um, he's, he's in his own body. He knows he's done nothing wrong because we, um, we all think of ourselves as the goodies in the situation. And from his point of view, um, Ruth has been previously uh, in an institution before for a brief amount of time um, after the death of her brother. Um, and I think there's this, this kind of, you know, you, you saw it a lot in, in Mad Men, for example, this, you kind of understand why Don Draper has all of these affairs because he's trying to sort himself out. He's trying to figure himself out and he is damaged and, and, um, and he's in his own head. And so he can, um, he can see that he's a good person and this woman, his wife, is telling him that he's not and that he's done something wrong and telling somebody who is doing something wrong that they've done something wrong is like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and the language that he uses is very particular. He accuses his wife of fantasies, of paranoia. He says, I'm sorry, you are becoming hysterical. You're talking like a mad woman. That's also something 
that you're interested in, isn't it? And it is something that seems to me to be very current. I mean, this is in the 1950s, but that whole concept of gaslighting, of making, of undermining the woman, of calling her crazy. And in fact, we see at a later point, the woman concerned at a later point of the novel starts to have doubts herself about what she knows, what she's seen herself. And she says she could see how she may have been wrong about things. And it seemed to me there you were wanting to show how vulnerable maybe all women, maybe some women more than most, are to being undermined in that way, that all it takes is for the man to throw the accusation back at them and to say, you're hysterical, you're paranoid, you're imagining things, for the woman to start to doubt even the evidence of her own eyes. Mm. Well, I think I think that's quite a common um, response. I think because women are taught that they are emotional and not rational and that men are taught they are rational and not emotional whenever whenever a man feels emotional it it comes out as rationale and whenever a woman you know has evidence has kind of hard facts it it is seen to come out as emotion and and I think that creates such a confusing atmosphere and it's certainly something that I experience you know I'm terrible at having you know I've never had a row on on, um, Ruth and Peter's kind of plateau but I'm terrible at arguing because I'm constantly thinking am I being insane why because also because a woman's rage um, is so tucked away and so when it comes out, it's large. It comes out so fast and hard that it, it often makes us cry when we're angry, mm. which is the most annoying thing in the world. Humiliating. Few, yes, so humiliating. And uh, But there's, there's, it's so crammed inside of us that when it comes out, that it, it looks like pure emotion, but actually it's perfectly rational. And it's, you know, <laughs> I think we've, you know, for, for hundreds of years, we have been battling with this idea that we are emotional and therefore unstable and unhinged and at the whim of our periods and all this stuff. Um, and it, you're not going to get over it in, you know, one generation or two generations. It's it's deep inside of us, um, just as our innate witchiness is. It's, it's all crammed in together and it's just, yeah. I think I think I'm so impressed uh, when women like Clementine Ford are able to be articulate when they're angry and and can say what they mean because I just sort of go beep, <laughs> you know, I just sort of flatline um, and my articulation goes and I, you know, have to go and write a strongly worded letter. <laughs> because I can't get it out because it's too much kind of at the surface. I read somewhere that you were inspired in writing this book by the catchphrase of two women who have a podcast called My Favourite Murder. Their catchphrase is fuck politeness. Now, you said that that was very much in your head as you were writing this novel, and I'm wondering to what extent this novel is really a giant howl of rage from you on behalf of all women. And if it is channeling your rage in this way into producing such a fabulous, incredibly powerful book, does that help you? Oh, it's a really good question. Um, I wish I could say yes. <laughs> I think I think I'm. I don't find writing like a kind of therapeutic act. It, it, it's thinking on the page. So. I feel like um, like sometimes I get asked if it was hard to write those terrible scenes, you know, the murders. And the answer is no, it, those were the easier scenes to write because they are the scenes that, you know, I think about all the time. Um, the That, you know, um, not being murdered, not being raped is on the to-do list of every woman. Um, and you have to make, you know, you you either block it off and you don't think about it and you just blithely walk around. And that's certainly one way of dealing with it. Or 
um, or you engage with it. And, and I think with this book, I, I was very conscious of not wanting to be um, polite and not wanting to shy away from things that might make people uncomfortable, mm. uh, men and women. Um, and also not to not be polite to myself, to, to engage with all of the moments that I felt like I was being too loud in and just really go for it. Um, and it, I, what I found is it's, it's a much harder book to talk about, um, you know, with my other novels by this stage in the publication process, I kind of had, I kind of felt like I'd said everything about them that I could think of saying. And this one I still find difficult to articulate. And I think, again, it's because of that, the anger is still there, you know, um, when I'm talking about these um, these moments, these murders and the, the lives of these women. And anger makes things difficult to talk about in for me. Mm. Um, so yeah but I think I do think that politeness is a I think it's probably saved so many lives um, it's certainly you know that it puts into words something we didn't realise was wrong which is you know if a man um, drives by and you're waiting at a bus stop and they're like I'll give you a lift your first like my first response was always like, oh, I don't want to offend him. I don't want him to think that I mm. think he's a murderer. Yeah. And if yes. you go, Jack, you're, you're so, um, yeah, you've got to be good and polite and above all, not make them uncomfortable, not make a fuss. Mm. Um, and so, like, I've, I did things in my, in my youth that um, really make the hair stand up on the back of my neck now. And I'm amazed I got out of them. And now I have this, with, with using that mantra, that um, fuck politeness, I have this way of thinking about things. It's like, no, I don't have to explain to you the plot of the novel that I'm reading. Um, you need to leave me alone. Like, But, you know, even within that, politeness is a shield because you don't want to aggravate someone. You know, there's, there's limitations mm. of politeness as well. Um, mm. And and I think um, I do think I'm thinking a lot about that thing that happens to to women reading books in public that a man will come up and mm. use it as a way mm. of chatting you what up. What are you reading? And, that looks interesting. What's yeah, it about? Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, you know, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't do that to a woman, or I wouldn't you're you're invading their brain space and their you know their fictional world and you're you're stepping into it and insisting yourself and it's so you know talking about violence it's that is a small violence to me that's mm. a and and then you're stuck with them if you're in a cafe you're like well do I just sit here pretending to read or do I leave and you know either way you're you're taken away from your book well the worst used to be a problem that we don't have at the moment which is if you stuck next to them on a plane on a long trip oh, well that that's a perfect example I was on um on my way to Australia when I was about 24 and I was sat next to a man who wouldn't leave me alone he uh, he kept I put my headphones on and he pulled them out of my ears I put my mask on and he kept prodding me. And then eventually he said, do you mind if I sleep on your shoulder? He had his little pillow and he put his, and I said, yes, that's fine. <laughs> I didn't want to make a fuss. And I was like, I'm sat next to it. But it never occurred to me if I'd gone up to the flight staff and said, there's a man who wants to sleep on my shoulder. <laughs> Just wouldn't, me? yeah. Because my thinking was, well, what if they're like, no. <laughs> Evie, I want to ask you now about the use of humour in this book. As everyone will have gathered by now, it covers very, very dark subject matter. But there are great injections of humour as well. At one point, Maggie, who is at least part, so we didn't explain before who Maggie was. So Maggie is a woman that Viv, the contemporary character in the novel, meets and befriends and invites to stay in the home with her mm -hmm. for a little while. And we find out that Maggie is at least or has been at some points a sex worker. And as she's telling Viv that, she says, 
they've just been talking about golf as well. And Maggie says, oh, I trust a man who golfs less than a man who pays for sex. So that's just one great example. There was another one where we've got um, Viv telling her sister, Catherine, something that their father said about Dom, Catherine's husband. And Viv, and Catherine at one stage says, well, what, what did Dad think about Dom? Oh, Viv says, he told me he'll make Catherine a perfectly decent first husband. <laughs> I'm wondering how important was it to you to weave some humour through this book? Oh, I don't think I could have written it without. It would just be a dirge, you know. I, <laughs> I think, I also think the darkest things are often the funniest, you know. It, I've, I've got a, a close friend at the moment whose father is in the process of dying and, and she rings me up in floods of tears and also hysteria because he said the funniest thing, you know. I don't think we get by dark places without humour it just is there and and you can't you can't get rid of it um they kind of they go together um and it's also if you just had all the dark stuff it would be incredibly boring and a hard read I think Mm. and I want the I want I want something there's a lot you know as you say there's ghosts and there's weird timelines and spooky things that happen but I think the reality of things is you they're not they are relentless, but they have these little up spikes. I want to ask you about the um the reason that you chose this particular corner of northeast Scotland with the best rock, which is a real um I don't know, rock or the island in the fourth. Volcanic plug. <laughs> Thank you. In in the fourth of Firth, have I got that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And I read that well at least one of the things going through your mind was that you had seen childhood photographs of your father with the bass rock in the background Mm. in an old family home and you yourself recalled spending time at the family home as well and I know that the character of Ruth is based on your father's mother loosely Mm. what did the bass rock mean to you growing up and why did you pick it as the backdrop for this novel and in fact the title for the book so I think, yeah, so the the house which most of the action happens in um, is my great aunt's house. And she was this incredibly grand old lady living alone um, with her sort of helper, in inverted commas. And, and so we'd go there at Easter and I'd just be very aware of this telescoping of time that my father had been there as a little kid and now I was there as a little kid and it it always that even when I was very small that fascinated me that how can that happen how can that those two things exist at the same time you know um and I have to say it wasn't it wasn't like childhood holidays where you're like oh this is like amazing I'm having a lovely time it was quite grim (laughs) it's like it's an interesting landscape to me because it's wild and it's sort of stinky and windy you know the the back the Bass Rock itself is home to a huge like the world's biggest gannet population a colony just tell us what the gannets are I read that and I didn't know what they're like a bit like a snake bird or a um a shag um and um so they're like diving birds and the whole rock is covered in their shit (laughs) so it stinks and it's far it's quite far out see it's just it has this um it sort of has this illusion you have big tides on North Berwick and so when the tide is out it looks like you could just hop over there and when the tide's in it looks really really far away um and there are seals around it and it's like it used to be used um, as a prison for Catholics. Um, and wow. then before that, there was a hermit living there. And it's this weird shape because it's this literally literal plug from a volcano. So it's this odd sheer shape and you can't really imagine how you would get on it. You know, it's like, it, it's wild and strange. And um and so, and then what they've done on North Berwick on the on the coast is they've um, sort of wallpapered over with a golf course, <laughs> which seems so 
unlikely and it's windy and there's tar on the beach and you smell these dreadful smells and then there are these people in their like diamond printed socks and little flat caps and and um and I just find that so interesting and not it's not my favorite place in the world I have a huge affection for it because of um that but and and I love the sort of British idea of a holiday I find those hilarious um, there was also an outdoor pool, you know, it's not quite the icebergs. <laughs> it's like, it's got like, you know, barnacles and seaweed and it stinks. Um, but yeah, I think for me, the fact that I have a photograph of my father as a toddler in a woolen swimming costume in front of the rock and, um, and then there's more or less the same of me at the same age. And the rock is the thing that remains the same in the background. It looks, you know, I mean, obviously it hasn't changed at all. And and just this idea that it's there and it has witnessed so much and it will go on to witness much after us. Um, again, that telescoping of time is something that always fascinates me. I'm going to finish by asking you, how do you feel about winning the 2021 Stella Prize mm-hmm. for the best book by an Australian woman or non-binary writer, fiction or non-fiction. And it's always hotly contested. And I know that you've been long-listed for this prize before. So how did it feel to win that prize for this book? I mean, it felt amazing. I think it's definitely a career highlight, um, which I thought I'd already had with the Miles Franklin. I was like, you know, that seemed bizarre but this again talking about the year that we've had and the this prize in particular that takes note of women's work it just is a a prize really close to my heart and and to be on the long list and the short list and um I don't know I I know of a few people who over the pandemic have had a real dry spell in reading and I certainly I'm guilty of that. I had a, I was, I felt unable to read and the shortlist in particular got me over that. And, um, and it was so wonderful to read all of these women um, looking at such interesting, important stuff. Evie, thank you so much for talking to me about your beautiful book, The Bass Rock. Again, an enormous congratulations. It's a huge achievement to win the Stella Prize and a very, very well-deserved one. So thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.